So we're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll do the entire chapter this week. And we're going to do a chapter a week for the next five weeks. And it's an amazing book. We're going to study this book verse by verse, chapter by chapter. But we're going to see in this book is a reference over and over again to the return of Christ. We're going to see each chapter of this book ends talking about the return of Christ. And so we're going to see today specifically, Paul's going to talk about the great church that was started in Thessalonians, in Thessalonica. This is a Greek city in northern Greece. And we're going to see today from the example of this church how we could be a great church. Do you know Jesus wants us to be a great church for his kingdom, for his glory, for his gospel, for his truth? Jesus even promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we're going to see some ingredients this morning for a great church. Ingredients are important, by the way. Have have you noticed when you're cooking something, ingredients are important? If you notice you get the wrong ingredients, they can really mess things up. I remember when we were first married, newlyweds. I remember Heidi got my grandma Hoppy's famous spaghetti recipe. And and we were excited because we had had it at my mom's house, and my mom gave the recipe to to Heidi, and we were in San Diego starting our first church, and my old roommate from college was in town. We were going to have him over for for, for his hoppy spaghetti. And Heidi had had simmered the meat for the spaghetti all afternoon, and I was looking forward to it because I knew how good that spaghetti was. But we had one problem. We had one wrong ingredient. Instead of using uh, uh, cornstarch, uh, somehow it got mixed up and there was baking soda put in the spaghetti. It neutralized everything. And we, Louis Catalo, my roommate from college, we still ate it. We were 20-something. We're going to eat it anyways, but it didn't taste like spaghetti. And for some reason, Heidi has never cooked my mom's famous hoppy spaghetti ever since. Just because of the bad memory of having one wrong ingredient in there. It messed the whole thing up. So, we got to get the right ingredients if we're going to be a great church. I'm going to give you six ingredients this morning on how we could be a great church. Turn your, turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Oh, before we do that, let me give you some background on Thessalonica. Again, major port city. A port city that uh, was a major city in the Roman Empire. There's 200,000 people in this city at the time. It was, it was uh, known for its business and its commerce. It was in uh, present-day Greece. It was a port city on the Aegean Sea where people is along the Ignatia Way to Rome. So it was a major uh, way or traveling route to Rome. So there's a lot of business going in and out of this city. A lot of people coming and going. A lot of goods being sold. So it was a busy city. Paul started this church on a second missionary journey. He was with Silas and he was with Timothy. And he started this church as he was proceeding through uh, Greece. He was in Greece because he was in Asia Minor before that. He wanted to continue his ministry in Asia Minor, but he got a vision. There's a Macedonian call. And he saw in this vision a man in Macedonia, which is present-day Greece, calling him to present-day Greece to bring the gospel there. So the first city he went to, you remember, was Philippi, Acts chapter 16. And he preached the gospel to some ladies that were praying by a river. And a great church was started, Lydia, the, the seller of purple uh, clo- clothing. She started the church, probably in her house. And a great church was started. But then there was persecution. Paul, Paul and Silas were beaten with rods. They were basically uh, persecuted, falsely accused. And after that, Paul left Philippi. And then he went to another city. And the city that he went to was Thessalonica. And he started the church in Thessalonica. But the Jewish leaders followed him there and, and persecuted him there to the point that after just three Sabbath days of preaching, he left because of the persecution. And then he went to Berea, 
where, again, um, uh, we're told in Acts 17 in Berea, the, the Christians there were noble-minded because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was even true. They were men and women of the Word. And then he went from Berea to Athens, where he preached at Marcelo, and then he landed in Corinth. While he was in Corinth, Paul had some interest about this church that he had started in Thessalonica. It was about a year later. And so he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on the new believers there. The church is only one year old. A lot of the, uh, it all started a year before that with just four weeks of preaching in the synagogue. So Paul sent Timothy. Timothy came back to Corinth. And Timothy gave a great report and said to Paul, this church is a great church. We're going to see today in the scripture that, that the, the gospel was sounding forth all over the Roman Empire from this great church. Lives had been changed by multitudes of people had turned from idols to, to serve the living and the true God. It was a great church. And so Paul wrote this letter in response to this, this report of the great church in Thessalonica, and he sent it back to Thessalonica. And that's what we have here in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, capiche? Understand? All right, let's jump in there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and see with that context what's going on, what made this church a great church. If you're in... Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, say amen. Here we go. Paul and Silvanus. Silvanus, another name for Silas, his traveling companion and co-laborer in the gospel, and Timothy, Timothy with his son in the faith, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Typical Pauline greeting. He starts addressing the church, grace. Grace is charis, undeserved merit and favor. Peace, Arian in the Greek, is restfulness of soul. And again, you're never going to have your soul at rest until you experience the grace of God through Jesus Christ. You come to grace, and it's amazing grace, amen? Amazing grace. And that grace then forgives you and gives you peace, serenity of soul. But interesting, the first thing he says about the church there is they are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the first thing that makes for a great church. It's a group of people. The word church actually means ecclesia in the Greek. It literally means called out ones. They're called out to be in Christ, to be in God the Father. And what makes for a great church is a church that's not only in God the Father and in Christ Jesus because of salvation, but Christ Jesus and God the Father is in them. Presence. Power. Glory is in a great church. And what makes for a great church is when you come to that church, you sense that you're in God the Father, you're in Christ, but also Father the Father in Christ Jesus is in you. We're temples of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that? And the, one of the things that makes for a great church is when you go to that church, you sense God, and you sense God's presence, power, and glory. You know, every Friday before we have Sunday morning services here, I'm walking through these chairs, and I'm praying. No one's here but me. Every once in a while, Noah or a sound technician person will be back there, and they'll think, oh, Pastor John's lost it again. He's talking to himself. But I'm not. I'm not talking to myself. I'm talking to God. And I'm praying over these chairs that when people come here on Sundays, they sense God's presence and God's glory and God's power. Because that makes for a great church. And you know those prayers have been answered because I talked to a lot of people. I talked to a couple this morning. They said the first time they came on this campus, never been here before, they were just touched by something. And they sensed that God was here. His presence was in this church. His power was here. And I'm praying for more of that. 
I want people to be struck by the presence of God when we meet in Jesus' name. I want people to sense God is in this place. He's in. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is in this place, and we're in him. And that makes for a great church, doesn't it? More and more. Give us more of that, Lord. Your presence, your glory, your power. Why? Because his presence is what changes us. Again, Corinthians tells us, as we behold his face, we're changed from glory to glory in his image. That's what changes us. That's what makes us more like Christ. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it also says in verse 3, he's constantly bearing in mind, or, or go to verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Do you know Paul was continually praying for the churches that he started? Well, he had a list of all the churches, all the Christians, all the people he led to Christ, and on a regular basis, we see in the epistles, he says over and over again, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you. And by the way, Paul exhorted Christians to be praying without ceasing. We'll see that First 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Paul exhorted Christians, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. He prayed, he, he exhorted Christians to be people of prayer, but Paul not only exhorted Christians to pray, he prayed. He lived it out. And when he had churches that he had started, especially churches like Thessalonica, that he was only able to be there for four weeks, well, the way he continued to be there with them is he continued to pray for them. There's power in that. The prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. You know, I had lunch with a gentleman in our church uh, just this last uh, week. At the end of the week, we, we uh, met uh, uh, downtown Columbia for lunch. Great brother. He was, he was one of the first guys that helped us in starting this church. I remember uh, uh, being with him and praying through the neighborhood we started our Bible study for this church in. He was with us from the very beginning. He was going to CIU getting his MDiv while we were starting this church, and he helped us. Him and Mike Nimmer were with us from the very beginning. And as we had lunch, we had a great time of fellowship, reconnecting and stuff. And then at the end of our lunch, we were walking out towards our, where our cars were parked in down Columbia, and he said, John, let me, let me do this. Is there anything I could be praying for you for? Is there anything specific I could pray for you for? And I gave him something specific to pray for me for. And he said, I'm going to start praying for you regularly on that area that you, you ask for prayer. And you know, that meant a lot to me. One of the things we could really do for one another that could really help one another is just to ask a brother or sister, what can I be praying for you for? And then pray for him. Don't just say, I'll pray for you. Pray for him. Because prayer changes things. Ch prayer is powerful and effective. It helps people. And that's what Paul was doing with the Thessalonic church. He couldn't be there in person, but he could be there through prayer and helping them through prayer. And then he says constantly, verse 3, bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of, God and of our God and Father. Now look at some of those adjectives describing this great church. They had works of faith, labors of love, steadfastness, and hope. What's that telling us? This is a working church. And what makes for a great church also is not only a church where the presence and the power of God is at, but a church where people are rolling up their sleeves and they're getting busy and they're serving God because God served us so well on the cross, we want to serve him. And notice the way that this work is described. Works of faith. Now be careful with that. Are we saved by our works? 
No, for by grace you're saved through faith, that not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. You're never saved by what you do. You're saved by what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. But right after saved by grace through faith, we go on and it says, we are his workmanship, created for good works, which God prepared beforehand, and we should walk in them. What's that saying? Our, our works are an evidence of our faith. And the Bible says in James, a faith without works is dead. Our works don't save us, but they're an evidence that we are saved. Our works are not the root of our salvation. Grace through faith is the root of our salvation. But the fruit of our salvation is serving and doing things for God. And I'm, I'm excited to see all the people that are getting more involved here at Calvary Chapel. I'm seeing more and more people serving around here. I went to that, what the gas bite on that Pastor Mike put on a, a couple Saturdays ago, and I was impressed. Because it's Saturday morning after men's breakfast, and I was going to stop by. I was going to help with the outreach a little bit, do some of the witnessing. So I thought it might be two, three people there. There was like 20 Calvary Chapel people there on a Saturday morning just wanting to be a witness to the people that come in and got gas bite-ons and cheaper gas. And it was, it was funny, too. Was, I was watching because I was, I was in the parking lot there, and a car would drive in, and it was like little bees hiving. The, I mean, there'd be all these coverage descending on these people buying gas, telling them about Jesus. Labors of love, works of faith, steadfastness, and our serving Jesus. One of my life verses is be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the works for the Lord, knowing that your toll in the Lord is not in vain. Heaven's watching. We're not saved by what we do, but we're rewarded in heaven for the things we do here on earth for the kingdom of God. And, and people, listen, our labor shouldn't be because we got to. Our work shouldn't be because we got to serve, we got to do this, we got to do No. Our labor should be, for Christ, should be labors of love. The word labor there is work to the point of exhaustion. Why? Because Jesus served us so well in what he did for us on the cross. Works of faith, labors of love. You moms know what labors of love is all about, right? After you changed the 10,000th diaper for that little guy, Say, why am I doing this? After you've been woken up night after night after night with those little guys, ear infections, teething, all that stuff, why do you do that? Because you love those kids and their labors of love. Moms, by the way, if you've got little kids, man, grab on to time with them. Don't blink. Before you know, they'll be gone. So enjoy those labors of love, those works of faith that you can do with your kids too, amen? So what's the second thing that makes a church great? It's a serving church. Bunch of people that want to say, what can I do for Jesus? And are willing to serve, get, get busy doing the Father's business. Labors of love, works of faith, steadfastness of hope. Verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Now, that's an interesting verse because Paul's reiterating here in, in chapter 1 what he said in Ephesians 1, 4. He says, we've been, we've been chosen before the foundation of the world. He said in Romans 8, 29, that God, those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And this is a, 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 a scripture, uh, a doctrine that's all throughout scripture that, that, that we're called by God. We're chosen by God. God knew that you were going to come to Christ even before you were born, before the foundation of the world. Now, careful with that because there's other scripture that points to human responsibility. Human responsibility is whosoever will can come. That if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you receive him, you will be saved. So how does that work with divine election and God choosing us? I don't know. But I do know, I do know both are in Scripture. And if you're a Christian here today, it's because God chose you. 
God sovereignly worked in your life, putting other Christians in your life to witness to you. God sovereignly worked in your life, drawing you to the kingdom. God sovereignly worked in your life through the Holy Spirit, convicting you of your sin and your righteousness and the judgment to come. God sovereignly did that for you. And some of you might be here that haven't crossed the line of faith yet. You haven't received Christ yet. And you're saying, well, well is, is God not choosing me? You know how you can know you're chosen by God? <laughs> Choose him. The way you can know that you're elected by God is receiving Christ. And if you haven't done that yet, today's your day. Let's, let's, let's firm up that decision that you're chosen. If you don't know that, receive Christ today, and then you'll know that you're chosen by God. You're chosen if you choose him. And, and that's, that might be why you're here today on this Friend Sunday, so that you could choose him. You could receive Christ and know that you know that you know that he's chosen you by receiving him. And then it says, going on in our scripture, verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but notice, how did the gospel come? In power, in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Here's what Paul's saying. Similarly, he said to the Corinthians, when we came to you, we didn't come with just a bunch of words. We didn't come with a bunch of just religious platitudes. We didn't come with all this religious jargon and talk. We came with power. The word their power is dunamos. We get the word dynamite from it. He, there was dynamite power working in Paul's ministry there. And they came with full conviction and with the power, notice, of the Holy Spirit. That's the next thing that makes for a church that's great. A great church is a, a church that's filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's power and there's conviction. And because of that, lives are being changed. Similar to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when he says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. But notice verse 4, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in, the, in what? Demonstration of the Spirit and of what? Power. There's the word again. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on what? Power. Power of God. I like power. <laughs> I like power. I like, I like getting in a turbocharged car and boom, go like this. I love our fireworks show every 4th of July where things are just blowing up. Power. I like power. I like power, but I like most of all the power of God. Power of God. I love, like we were singing that last song about the, God's faithfulness and the goodness of God. And there was power. There was power in that worship this morning because power, again, is what changes us. Power. Why do we have all these doves around here? You know, why, why do we got a dove up here? Why do we got a dove on the floor back there in the tile? Why do we have a dove above all the, all, the, all the doors? I get that question all the time. What's with all these doves? Do you just like birds around here at Calvary Chapel? What's with the doves? Why do you have all these doves? Now we have all the doves? <laughs> it's because what is the dove a symbol of? What happened when Jesus began his ministry, his baptism? The dove from heaven came down, the symbol of the Holy Spirit, and he was endued with power for that public ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the part of our, our DNA as a church and as a movement of churches. The reason why Calvary chapels are marked by doves is because they began with the power of the Holy Spirit. One of our key verses for Calvary Chapel, it's not by our might nor by our power, but it's by God's Spirit. 
And what happened in 1965 when Pastor Chuck started the very first Calvary Chapel with 25 people is there was an incredible visitation of the power of God for years where the Holy Spirit just fell. So much so, I talked to Pastor Chuck one time after, after one of the sessions at a pastor's conference, and I asked him, well, what happened when the revival hit that started Calvary Chapel? I don't know if you know this, but the last great revival in America was the Jesus People movement that struck in the late 60s, early 70s, and the epicenter of that revival was Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And I talked to Pastor Chuck about that one time, and I said, what was going on then? He goes, it was just power. It was nothing we were doing. It was all the power of the Holy Spirit changing people's lives. He said that we had a three-year period in the late 60s where we would just preach the gospel and everybody was coming to Christ to the point that we were baptizing 900 young people a month for three years. That's in the one church. It's power. I talked to Chuck Gerard, who was the worship leader for the main band for Calvary Chapel during that revival time. His band's name was Love Song. He came here and did a concert for us several years ago. And I talked to him about what was going on during this revival time with Jesus people in Calvary Chapel. And he goes, it was just power. He said, you just talk about Jesus and dozens of people come forward and want to get saved. And he said also, it was Pastor Chuck's teaching of God's word. He, he said Pastor Chuck was like a fire hydrant. He would just, he was for years, he was just teach so much of God's word because he was so concerned about all these young people coming to Christ. And I remember being at a Sunday night service with Pastor Chuck teaching very well. The first time I went, I'll, I'll never forget it, but he was like a fire hydrant with the Holy Spirit just proceeding as he taught God's word. But you know, Pastor Chuck, during that time when that revival was happening, he teached 10 chapters a night on Sunday nights, three-hour Bible studies. And that was what laid the foundation for Calvary Chapel. Amazing power. But Chuck Gerard also told me that what was happening during that time of revival was there was a young, young hippie. His name was Lonnie Frisbee. And he had an incredible gift of evangelism. And he'd go to all the high schools in the Orange County area, and that was when the high schools would eat outside on the picnic tables because the weather's always beautiful in San Diego. And they, that would be their cafeteria. And Lonnie Frisbee would go, and he would go with his Bible and his sandals and his long beard and his hippie hair, and he'd stand on the picnic tables, the Orange County picnic tables at the high schools, and he'd preach the gospel. And dozens and dozens and dozens of teenagers at their lunchtime would walk towards the picnic table and receive Christ and get saved. Said, uh, said Chuck Gerard said Lonnie Frisbee too would, 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 would teach uh, on the Saturday night concerts they would do. And he said there was such a charisma and such a power in his anointing at that time. He'd walk down the middle aisle to come up and teach and give an altar call at the end of the concerts. And he said you could literally sense the anointing and power as you walked down the aisle. It's just whoa, like this. And then he'd, he'd, he'd preach the gospel at the end of these concerts and literally... Night after Saturday night after Saturday night, dozens and dozens and dozens and hundreds at times of young people would come to Christ because of the power that was there. Incredible. And then they'd have ministry times afterwards and they'd pray for people that, that needed supernatural healing and God would touch and heal supernaturally because of the power that was present. That's our roots. And that power, that dove, represents the roots of Calvary Chapel, which is the power of the Holy Spirit. Hey, may we continue to pray for that and continue to walk in that power. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Power. Let's pray for more of that. Amen, church? That's, that's where it's at, the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And then going on, it says after that, verse 6, You have also become imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. It seems like an oxymoron there. Much tribulation and joy. Whoa. That doesn't always go together with me. With much tribulation it happens, but no. The believers there had tribulation and persecution, but they still had the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia, which is northern Greece, and Achaia, which is southern Greece. Interesting. Here's the next thing that makes for a church that's great. A church that's great is going to have a whole bunch of people that are looking towards godly people and imitating their godliness and then becoming godly themselves so they could be examples to others. You know what that's called? Discipleship. And what discipleship is, is you get some people in your life that are more godly than you, that are more spiritually mature than you, and you learn from them, you learn from their example, as Paul says to the Thessalonians, we, we, you imitated us as we imitated Christ. And then after you get some people in your life that are, you're imitating, you're getting a disciple by, then you can be an example to other people, and then other people can learn to be godly from your example. And that's fulfilling Jesus' words in Matthew 28 that says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice, teaching them to observe all that have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's how it works. And church, we're seeing that here too. We're a discipleship-oriented church, aren't we? It's not just me either on Sunday mornings or Mike on Wednesday nights. It's happening within our body. People ask me all the time about our U-Turn for Christ ministry. They say, how in the world do all these guys, and we love our U-Turn for Christ ministry. We love all God that's doing uh, through our U-Turn for Christ ministry. But I have people ask all the time, how in the world do these guys come to your program and, and they come off the streets and drugs and immorality and just craziness, they come to your program and their lives are changed and they become godly. Some of our pastors on staff, a lot, half of my staff now are graduates of U-Turn for Christ. How does that happen? My standard response is, well, first of all, word of God. They're in the word of God every day. They have Bible studies several times every day. Start with Proverbs in the morning. They have a mid-morning Bible study after that. They have Bible study every night of the week. The word of God changes people's lives. God's word changes us and changes U-turn, guys. But also, you know what the big part of change, too, is? Our U-turn helps people to change and drastically change because we're getting guys that come in U-turn around other people in the church that are godly. Every night, there's people coming in, godly men coming in, discipling and doing Bible studies for our U-turn guys. And then what happens is our U-turn guys get around godly people. They start seeing godliness, and Christianity is more caught than taught. And then they start imitating the godly people around, and then they could be an example to the new guys that are coming in because they're becoming godly themselves, and then they start to disciple the new guys that are coming in. That's discipleship. That's how it's supposed to work in the church of Jesus Christ. And church, by the way, that's why it's important that you get beyond Sunday morning Christianity. That's why it's important that you get involved in getting beyond just the large group of Christianity. You get in some Bible studies where you get some friendships and fellowship with godly people, and you see godliness in them, you catch it, and you start becoming more godly yourself. And then you can be an example and a disciple of other people too. That's why men's breakfast, I love our men's breakfast. Because every Saturday morning we come together as men, and that's, to me, our men's breakfast is discipleship time. It's an opportunity for us as men to interact with our Bibles open and ask questions and have interaction and talk about things and then be around each other. That's discipleship. And men, if you're not coming to our men's breakfast, come on out, man. 7.30, best breakfast you'll get. It's better than Lizard's Thicket. 
I always wondered, how, why would anybody name a restaurant Lizard's Thicket? Oh, do you want to go eat lizards or something? But anyways, it's, our, we, we have the best breakfast in town. And let me say something again. It's free. Come and join us, man. And women, please, check out this new women's breakfast. What's the purpose of Heidi doing a separate Bible study for you women? Discipleship. So you can have friendship with one another and fellowship and get around some godly people you can imitate, and then you can disciple other people in the same context. That's discipleship, and it makes for a great church. Amen? Amen. So let's jump in. Let's, let's be a part of these things. Small groups, same thing. Small groups. Family dinner hour, same thing. Being around godly people. Help you become godly. And that's what's happening in the church in Macedonia. They're, they're becoming imitators of Paul and his missionary team, and then they're being an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, verse 8. For the word of the Lord was sounded forth from you, from Thessalonica, and not only in Macedonia, which is northern Greece, and Achaia, southern Greece, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God. Here's what's happening. It's a port city. People are coming in and out. And it's sounding forth all throughout the Roman area and the Grecian area that these Thessalonians, they turned. They're turning from the pagan idols. They're turning from their immorality. They're turning for living for the devil and for darkness. And now they're turning to Jesus to serve a living and a true God. Drastic life changes going on in Thessalonica. And the report's even getting back to Paul 100 miles away in Corinth. He's saying, wow, we don't have to say anything because we're hearing about you guys, what God's doing in your midst. Here's the next thing that makes for a great church. A great church is going to be an evangelistic church. A great church is going to be a place where people are having their lives drastically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That makes for a great church. And people are going to talk. As lives are being changed, it will sound forth. The word sound forth there is echoed. It reverberated all throughout the Roman Empire of what God was doing in Thessalonica because lives were being changed. It's happening here too. <laughs> it's fun to see. People are talking, talking about Calvary Chapel. They're talking about Calvary Chapel. Oh, that's that Hershey Kiss church. No, I <laughs> say that sometimes because our building over there looks like Hershey Kiss. I, I always tell when people say Hershey Kiss, yeah, it's sweet. Come on in. Come on in. It's sweet on the inside. But people are talking about what God's doing here in this church. I was reminded of that this week. I, I was uh, I started a new diet. I'm trying to be more vegan, and it's really tough because there's not a lot of options out there. So I'm trying to do mostly fruits and vegetables, but I'm still doing fatty fish. And so it's really tough because I'm married to a butcher's daughter, and she loves meat. But I, I'm trying to make this transition to be more vegetable and fruits and stuff. So Heidi, Heidi and I went to dinner uh, this week to this place called Good Life Cafe. It's right in the heart of Columbia, right in Main Street. Great food. I like it too because they, it's, it's all, all veggie-oriented and stuff, but it tastes like meat. So I order their tacos, and it's, it's not meat, it's, but it tastes like meat. The sour cream, it's, it's, it's not even gluten. I mean, it's, 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 it's gluten-free and all this stuff, but it tastes like sour cream. So I, I'm there, I'm having my, my tacos with Heidi, and this, this big black guy walks into, African-American guy walks into Good Life Cafe, and I look at him, he goes, oh, Heidi, that's... That's Dr. Andre Rogers, who teaches for me all the time. 
And she goes, yeah, that is Dr. Andre Rogers. And I go, hey, Andre, man, come on. And he came over our table, and he was with his drummer, who's a vegan. Uh, his drummer was with him. And, and I said, Andre, what are you doing at this place? He goes, well, I'm changing my diet, and I'm trying to. I go, I am too, man. And so he sat down and just talked to us for like 20, 25 minutes. I love the guy. Brilliant man. But I was talking to him. And you know what one of the first things he said to me as we were talking and stuff? I, I, he said, uh, I've been at CIU now for 20 years. And I go, wow, we started the church a little bit over 20 years ago. And he goes, Dr. Andre Rezzo would say, I know. What do you mean? I go, what do you mean I know? He goes, I've been watching you guys. I know, the last 20 years. I've, I've been hearing about you guys. And I've, 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 been, I've, had, I've been watching you on TV every Sunday morning. I go, wow, you get up early, 6.30 in the morning. He goes, I watch you every Sunday morning. He goes, I, I, I got my eye on you guys. I know, what you, I know what's going on at Calvary Chapel. And what he's implicating there is he's been hearing through the community, through CIU, that lives are being changed here at Calvary Chapel. And every time I ask that guy to speak for me, he's, even though he pastors his own church, he is here, Johnny in the spot, because he wants to be a part also of what God's doing here at Calvary Chapel. Amen? So let's keep doing that, church. Let's be about life change. Let's keep getting the gospel out so lives can change from turning from serving idols and idolatry and the immorality of this world. Let's keep bringing the gospel to people so they can change and turn to serve the living and the true God. That's what makes for a great church. And the last thing that makes for a great church, we'll close with this morning, into the chapter, verse 10, says, and a great church is going to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Thessalonians was a great church because they were waiting for the soon return of Jesus Christ. And notice the end of that verse. There's an implication there in the end of that verse is that Jesus, when he, he's going to rescue us from the wrath to come. That's pointing forward to the fact of the rapture of the church of Jesus Christ. The wrath is the bowls of wrath that will happen during the seven years of great tribulation, and it's coming. Antichrist is going to take over the world. And he's going to bring, bring God's judgment upon this world, including the wrath of God. And what rescues us as believers is the rapture. We're going to learn about it in detail when we get to chapter 4. We'll, go, we'll dig. And we'll see that there's going to be a coming event where the, the trumpet's going to blow and the dead in Christ will rise first and we're going to be caught up in the clouds to see Christ in the air and every Christian alive is going to be raptured out of here, caught up in the clouds to get out of this world because Christ doesn't want his bride, his church, to be here for the seven years of God's wrath and judgment upon this world that's going to happen during the Great Tribulation. He rescues us from the wrath to come. And we'll look at the rapture in detail in a few weeks when we get to chapter 4. But let me tell you something, church. The last thing that makes for a great church is this doctrine of the imminent return of Christ. What is that? It's been in the church from, from the first century on, from Paul's day. The imminent return of Christ is the belief that at any moment, any moment, we could see Jesus Christ and rap, be raptured out of here. Any moment, Christ could come. Like a thief in the night, the scripture says. And it's going to happen. And soon and very soon, we're going to see our king. That's the imminent return of Christ. And every generation of Christians should live like this is the hour and this is the day and this is the time that Christ will return. And for goodness sake, with all the signs that are in place in our generation right now, it very likely could happen in our generation. I mean, Israel's a nation again for the first time in 2,000 years. 
We have all the, all the world currency going on. We got what Bitcoin and all the other craziness. That's all the technology for the mark of the beast. All that stuff is coming into place. We are getting close, church. Every, all the signs of the time, they're coming in there. And we should live like the Thessalonians, waiting for the soon return of our Savior from heaven to rapture us out of here. Why is that important? Because when you really believe that, how are you going to live? You're going to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You're going to have the blessed hope of the soon return of Christ. It's going to put an urgency and a fire in your heart to live for Christ. Because you don't want to be living a stupid life when you see Christ. I don't want to be. I don't want to be doing something dumb right when Christ pulls me up to see him face to face in the clouds. And Scripture tells us that. We're told in 1 John, this blessed hope of the return of Christ will keep us holy. And it should. But another thing that it does, it gives us an urgency to reach as many people for Christ as possible because those people we care about, we don't want them left behind, do we? With the soon return of Christ, we don't want them to go through this wrath this craziness of the great tribulation, Jacob's trouble, the scripture calls it. We want them out of here along with us. I do. Every person I care about, I want them to come to Christ. I pray for family members that, in my family that don't know Christ. I pray for them every single day because there's an urgency in knowing that soon and very soon we're going to see our Savior. We're going to see him. We're going to be raptured out of here. And again, this is a part of the DNA of Calvary Chapel too. From the very beginning of our movement of churches, there's always been an emphasis on the soon return of Christ. Pastor Chuck would have a New Year's Eve service every year for decades at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, where he'd give prophetic updates about how we're getting really close to the soon return of Christ. And he'd end those New Year's Eve prayer services with not only the prophetic update, but he would say, hey, let's pray that this is the year that Christ would return. And let's pray with fervency for that this year. And what's propelled Calvary Chapel to start over 1,200 churches around the country, probably 1,000 overseas, because of the urgency of the soon return of Jesus Christ. Now, when we started our church in uh, Oshkosh, Wisconsin, yes, there really is an Oshkosh. You see the jeans all the time. I live there in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And when we started that church, we started with a, a campus a group of college students, and they all wanted to study the book of Revelation. So we studied verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the whole, whole book of Revelation. And I discipled them and what the Word had to say about the soon return of Christ and the great tribulation and the second coming of Christ. And you know what happened to those college students? They got on fire for Christ. It's amazing. We had a, a, close to 100 college students in that church that were on fire for Christ. And they were reaching other college students for Christ, too. It was amazing, the fire that was in those college students as we studied the book of Revelation. And I got asked a couple other times during the six years we were there in Wisconsin, I got asked to do uh, uh, two more studies. We studied the book of Revelation chapter by chapter, verse by verse, three times in six years. And it put a fire in their hearts for living for Christ and not living for Christ, but to reach other people for Christ. That will happen as we have this imminent return of Christ as a part of our DNA and who we are as a church. One of my favorite Christian artists of all time, uh, Keith Green, love the guy. Still play him on our Calvary Chapel radio station because we own the station, we'll play whatever we can. But he, he died in 1982, 28 years old. But in the, and he, he didn't get saved until he was 21. 
He did ministry from 21 when he got saved to 28. He produced five albums that have been listened to by millions of people, have touched a whole generation of young people during that time in the 70s and 80s. And not only that, he started a last day's newsletter, it was called. And this newsletter to this day goes out to hundreds of thousands of people and touches lives to this day. And I was thinking about that this week. This guy lived, he, he didn't get saved until he was 21. He died at 28. He only was a Christian for seven years and the impact he had. And the fervency he had to live for Christ and to touch people with the gospel of Jesus Christ changed a whole generation of young people, including me. How'd that happen? You know what the name of his ministry was? Last Days Ministry. You know what the name of his newsletter is? I just said it. Last Days Newsletter. He believed we're in the last days, and we are. So he had this fire, this urgency to live for Christ and to reach as many people for Christ as possible. May we be like the Thessalonians, and may we be waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That's Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Amen? Hey, and listen, if you're here this morning and you're not rescued yet, if you're here this morning and you don't know for sure that you know that you know that you know that you've opened your heart to Christ, if you're here this morning and you were to die today and you wouldn't know for certain that you're going to heaven, today's your day. And what I would encourage you to do during this prayer time is just receive Christ. I'll give you the opportunity to do it. Just pray a simple prayer. All I'm going to ask you to do is raise your hand and say that you want me to pray for you, and I will. And I'll help lead you in a prayer that you can open your heart to Christ. It'll be the best decision you've ever made. I did it 40 years ago, and it radically changed my life. And all you have to do is admit that you need Christ. Admit that you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Admit that. All, all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then after you do that, you need to trust Christ. The Bible says that we believe in Christ for our salvation. The word believe there is trust. Put, put cling to. You need to have a time in your life where you say, I'm going to trust Christ. Not me, not my works. I'm going to trust Christ to be my Savior, to be my Lord. And then the last thing you need to do is receive. The Bible says, but as many as received Christ... He gives the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. There's got to be a time in your life, if you haven't done it yet, there's got to be a time in your life where you receive Christ. Where you open your heart. You say, I receive you, Jesus, my Savior and my Lord. I'll give you an opportunity to do it during our prayer time. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your word this morning, God. Thank you that your word reminds us of what makes for a great church, Lord. And Father, may we be that church. May Calvary Chapel be a church where your presence and your power and your glory is in our midst, Lord. May we be a church that's a church filled with labors of love and works of faith and steadfastness in our serving you, Lord. May we be a church that's empowered by your spirit, Lord. May your Holy Spirit come upon us and be flowing in us and through us as a church. May we be a Holy Spirit-empowered church, Father. And may we be a disciple-making church too, Lord. Help us to continue to live godly lives and be able to say to other people, follow me as I follow Christ. And Father, would you, would you help us in this area of being an evangelistic church too? Help us not to be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation, whoever believes. Help us never to be ashamed of this thing that has changed us and saved us, Lord. And Lord, help us to be a church too, a church that is awaiting for the soon return of Jesus Christ. And help us to be a church that's looking forward to the rapture where we're going to see Christ face to face. And then we too will be perfectly conformed into his image, Lord. In the meantime, Lord, help us to have an urgency 
an urgency to live for you. Seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and an urgency to be a witness for Christ to a world that's looking and needs leadership and needs Jesus.